Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number three of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Joining me is Michael Sellers, a former case officer with the Central Intelligence Agency who served in Poland, Ethiopia, the Philippines, and most famously in Moscow, where he was arrested by the KGB during a meeting with a clandestine source in 1986. Michael undertook some of the riskiest international assignments of the 1980s and has some incredible stories to tell and lessons to share. Michael, thank you for joining me today. I know that you've spent a number of years with the Central Intelligence Agency as a case officer, including in Moscow in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And I know that you had some incredible experiences on these tours overseas. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to learn about them from you firsthand. And I know that our listeners are going to be really grateful as well. Can you start just by kind of taking us all the way back to the beginning and describe what it is that brought you to the CIA in the first place? I, I'm sort of an accidental CIA officer, I think more so than, than a lot of people are. Most of the people that I knew and I worked with were very purposeful. They knew, you know, at some point early on in their like college years that it was something that they wanted to do. I had a different route into the whole thing. I, I went to graduate film school. I came out to Hollywood. I was trying to get started in film. And circumstances just evolved that I, I had originally had some brief contact with a CIA recruiter back when I was a senior in college. And then it kind of nothing for three or four years. And then I was contacted again or kind of bumped into them again. And it just happened to be at the right moment when I was a little bit frustrated with my with the fact that Hollywood was not recognizing my genius as quickly <laughs> as I wanted him to. You know, my father had been an army officer. I kind of knew that life, that service life. And I kind of found myself kind of yearning for it a little bit. And of course, it was an adventure in the, in the making, you know, so all of those things kind of came together. So it was kind of a thing where I, you know, I didn't think too much about it until the opportunity presented itself. And then once it presented itself, it kind of grew on me quite quickly. So I, it first presented itself in like Jan, December of one year, and I was already on board by July of the next year. Oh, wow. So what do you think it was that made you an attractive candidate to the CIA at that time? Well, I, I mean, I know what they were looking for, you know, in terms of what they, they claim they said they were looking for. And I guess I kind of fit the bill. They said that they were looking they had kind of ads out in the time. And they, in the ads, they would say they were looking for people who had high, strong academic credentials, ability to communicate concisely, both orally and in writing and willingness to serve overseas at times under hardship conditions and language demonstrated language skills and capability. So, you know, that was what they they claimed they were looking for. And, and I guess, you know, I, in some degrees, I, I fit that. The part that I didn't think fit was that I was kind of a long-haired guitar playing, Greenpeace, sort of liberal, you know, rough around the edges kind of guy. And I thought that would probably scare them away. But they didn't seem to care. They actually thought that was pretty cool because they said, well, we need people that don't look like you know, everybody's a cookie cutter. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so that was that's how, how it kind of went. Absolutely. Did you already speak any other languages besides English when you applied? 
I had studied, my undergraduate degree was in, I had a double major in classics was one of my majors. So I had Greek, ancient Greek and Latin, which of course are not spoken modern languages, but they give you a very good foundation in languages. So when I took the the modern language aptitude test, I evidently scored in a range that convinced them I had some language skills. Hmm. Good, good, good. So what was the training pipeline like after you joined? You said it was in July of the following year? Yeah, I came in July and then the way it kind of worked, you came on board, you spend like three or four weeks at headquarters kind of getting oriented. We used to kind of joke about it. It was it was like one wiring diagram after another of different you know, different components to the agency. It was very, very kind of like uh seminar y drink a lot of coffee, sit there all day kind of thing. Hmm. And then after that, and that was orientation, not really training. And then we went to the farm. And that's where the real training began. And that's very intensive. So, you know, you go down there and, and that training is the, the basic part of it is like 16 weeks. I think you're running around. It's a combination of, you know, classroom stuff, but a whole lot of practical exercises and a lot of role playing because the practical exercises, they, they make you pretend that you are in a country. There's an, you know, they have a name for the country. And so while you're there taking classes in the kind of administrative side of it, in the role-playing side, you're a new case officer having just arrived in this country. And on the beginning, from the very first day, you have live action, live exercises where, you know, you're you're playing the role of a young, newly arrived case officer in a country. And then you're given various operational tasks and assignments and so on. So it's pretty intensive. And it was, it was cool. I mean, I certainly enjoyed it. Wow. Wow. Was there quite a bit of attrition, that, as you recall? No, no, almost none. That, they, they take care of that in the preliminary screening you know i don't remember what the numbers are but it's thousands and thousands of people they start with and they end up with a few and by the time they did almost nobody nobody quit i don't think there were 35 35 or 36 people in my class and they all you know they all made it through oh wow okay that's really good i'm surprised by that actually but that makes perfect sense that you weed out the people who are unlikely to make it before you even start the training that's what they do. I mean, it's a, you know, you have all the psychological testing that you go through and in a polygraph and there's, you know, multiple levels of interviews and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I you know, I, I think the expectation is that once you're there, that you're going to stick with it. And I mean, that certainly was the experience. I don't even think anybody in my group was sort of even on the verge of dropping out or having any kind of anything like that. It was distressful training, but everybody seemed to have been well selected and they're all very competitive. Hmm. Great. So, after you completed the training, what happened next? Did you go to an overseas assignment right away? I was pretty lucky in that regard. So what happens is you finish the training, and then there's a second module of training, which is the paramilitary training. I took that, too. Now, I was not anticipating that I would be a paramilitary officer, but I couldn't resist taking the training. And I was a, kind of a jock from college days and all of that, and, and the idea of jumping out of planes and doing the, you know, jungle survival and all that stuff was, was stuff that appealed to me. So I did that. And then when I got to headquarters right away, I got pretty lucky. I was assigned to the Polish de desk. Some situation had come up in Poland that they needed somebody in a hurry to go out there for six or eight months and they offered it to me and I took it. So, you know, actually before that, I should mention there's this kind of, when you finish up the training, there's like a, this big decision-making process about which division, which area division you're going to go to. And I had decided I wanted to go to the Soviet East European division because I really felt that was the part of the agency that I wanted to do my time in. So I got that. 
then I landed on the Polish desk. And then, you know, I should have been there a year or so just doing desk work, but I got to go out into the field within about a month and a half. Wow. Wow. So it sounds like you're, you're moving like right into the major leagues. I mean, right off the bat, so to speak. I was lucky. It was something where there was a, a, a unique, an officer had had to come home. And so there was a hole out there and they didn't have anybody with Polish language that they could send right away. And so I was kind of a stopgap long, what we call TDY, temporary duty, but it was almost like, it ended up being about eight months, I think. So almost like a, a real tour of duty, but it was, it was eight months was the total of it. Hmm. Do you think that the training that you went through at the farm and the paramilitary training, did it prepare you for that first duty assignment? Yes and no. I mean, it did, except that that assignment was to, uh, well, there's a specialized kind of training that you take before you go into what we would in those days called denied area, which was in, in, in Eastern Europe, like Warsaw Pact countries. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole, there was an additional special module of training that you would get. There was a two months major training course, and I did not get that. So I went out there and I was given certain restrictions on what I would be able to do. I was kind of like basically given two pretty big jobs and they were interesting jobs. One was there there was one very famous agent that, you know, I think the world knows about now who was operating in Poland at that time. His name was Richard Kuklinski, a Polish, a member of the Polish general staff who was the best military asset that we had in all the Warsaw Pact. And so there was a need to prepare an exfiltration plan for him and his family. And then there was a special communications thing for him that I was supposed to do some testing on and develop sites and things like that. So I felt like I was connected to a really major operation, but there were some restrictions on the other things that I could do because of my new status and not having had that training. Wow. Well, so were you involved in his actual exfiltration when it came time for that or just in the planning of it? I had gone on to my next assignment by that time, but my planning was involved in it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it makes me feel connected to it a little bit because it was cool. I woke up one morning and found out, you know, they gotten him out. And I knew that, you know, I, I later found out that, you know, significant elements of my planning were part, you know, had been used. So that was pretty cool. And it made me feel, made me feel like I was part of something special. Absolutely. That must be incredibly rewarding. So, I mean, you essentially were involved in saving his life and saving his family's life. Would that, would you put it that way? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that we're, but I, but also I would say that every time we're working with any of these agents, we were always trying to keep them alive. You know, it, it's a continuum. Every time we'd go out to meet an agent, we were very, very aware of the fact that if we screwed up, it would cost the agent his life. Mm-hmm. You know, and so exfiltration is kind of a, it's very nice because it's an affirmative, positive act where you actually do get them out. And so, yeah, we, you know, I had that feeling a little bit, but we always had, the, I guess the flip side of it is the burden of knowing that if you screw up, then they're going to end up, uh, you know, in a very bad place. And so I always felt that, I think. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's quite a burden to bear for sure. Quite a heavy weight when you're putting these operations together, I'm sure. So after your assignment in Poland, what did you move on to then? So I finished Poland. I came back and right away they gave me another assignment, which I thought was really kind of cool. It was Ethiopia, which was at that time a communist country. It was kind of like the Cuba of Africa. Hmm. So there were lots of East Germans, lots of Soviets there, very few Americans. You know, kind of an exciting and interesting country to me, just on a personal level, kind of the sort of ancient kingdom of Ethiopia kind of a thing. So that was my next assignment. I went there in February, like three months after I got back from Poland. Oh, wow. Wow. Were you doing similar work as to in Poland or was it totally different ballgame? Well, there, 
there's there's kind of a distinction that they made in those days between behind the Iron Curtain sort of work and anything else. And Ethiopia was not behind the Iron Curtain, but it was kind of like that because of the it was a communist country, and we were under surveillance, and we had you know you really had some opposition that you had to deal with. So it's kind of like that, but you could also recruit, which we didn't do. In, 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 in the main thing that the CIA officers do around the world, the main thing they get, I guess, rewarded for and judged on is their ability to recruit new assets. And the exception to that is inside the former communist bloc, where it was not possible because of so much surveillance on us all the time. <laughs> so when I got to Ethiopia, you, you had a blend of you know doing things kind of like we would in East Bloc, but we could do some recruiting. And so it was a little different that way. And a little bit more mainstream. Hmm. Good. So, did you have any any success with recruitment then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was pretty fortunate throughout my whole career. Things kind of went well for me, you know. So, I had to drink a lot of scotch. We we it was kind of funny. I used to say the CIA seemed to sort of like run Africa on Johnny Walker Red. For some hmm. reason, that was what everybody liked. And there was just a lot of this sort of bonding with senior government officials who were very, you know, secretly pro-American. I mean, you think about it. It was a country that had been pro-West for many years. Haile Selassie had been killed, the, the emperor, and then they had gone communist. But there were a lot of people who had a history with America. And, and so, you know, I kind of they would seek me out almost. And then kind of we'd get we'd bond over a bottle of Johnny Walker Black. And I would find out, you know, there were people who were interested in working with us who had access to information of great interest. So it was I don't want to say it was easy because they were risking a great deal and they were if they got caught. They were going to, to die. So it was a very serious thing. But on the other hand, I didn't have to persuade anybody. I just had to gain their trust. And then they would kind of declare themselves to me. Hmm. I'm sure it's it's different in every case. But what is it that they got out of these relationships? I mean, it's clear what you and what the agency got out. But what were these individuals getting out of this huge risk that they're taking with you? Everybody has their own reasons for doing what they do. And they run the gamut from ideological, you know, you could take I'm just saying hypothetically now you could take somebody in a country that had been democratic pro-West and now is communist and they want to fight against that, you know, in the, in the best way that they can. So you have that ideological type. You have somebody who's trying to get his kids out to go to, you know, college in the U S and wants help with that. Or you have somebody who has, you know, some illness in the family that they can't get treated and they look for, for help for that. I mean, people have different motivations for the most part, Though I think there was the, the the constant theme was that there was an affinity for America, but there were all these other things. And our job, typically, I mean, I, I used to think of the job as like understanding what it was that was lacking in that other person's life, and then seeing if there was a way that we could guide them into a situation where we could we could help fulfill that in a way that would make it worth the risk that they were being asked to take. Well, wow. okay. Did you? Do you feel like you formed like deep personal relationships with these people? I mean, in some cases, at least, did you get to know them really well, get to know their families, anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, it's a deep bond. I mean, particularly when you're involved with someone who's taking such a risk, you end up getting quite close to them. And I mean, on a human level, it's inevitable, particularly when you're the one who recruits them, that you are going to be close. I mean, it's also one of the problems that you also face because there's this famous adage, don't fall in love with your agent. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet that's one of the reasons you recruit them in the first place is because you, you know, you like them. You're, you're, you're impressed by them. You feel that they have great capability and in, in, in common principles that we share. 
you know, so you have a high regard for them and you also are extremely protective of their, of their security. And you frequently, you know, not frequently, but it, you know, time, from time to time, you get into a, a struggle with headquarters, for example, over what's right and fair, you know, to ask the agent to do. And the field is very protective of the agent and typically headquarters is more big picture and more about the results. And so you have some conflict like that. But yeah, you get close to them. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You're having to ask them to do something that's incredibly risky for them. And the benefit is mostly on you. The benefit comes to you and the risk goes to them in, in so many ways. It's well, yeah. I mean, sort of. I, I think that they get benefit as well. And you try to make it a fair exchange. But it's hard to really call it a completely fair exchange when you contemplate the level of risk that they take. But I mean, you know, they get paid well or they get benefits that are really important to them or they get, you know, help in other ways. But but I mean, on balance, I, I don't think it's wrong to say that. <laughs> They, they're they're risking more than we are, and it's a tough situation for them. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, that's. Do you think that there is a? I hate to use this cliche, but is it more of a, a science or is it more of an art to this recruitment pitch and this and the source handling, so to speak? Well, I think it's an. I mean, it's the recruitment part of it is kind of an art, and it's mostly. I would say there were certain people who could do it really well. And there are certain people, you know, who never particularly did it very well. And I, I mean, I, I was successful, but I was kind of laid back about it in the sense that it kind of came to me. It always seemed to come to me. I would I would as long as I met the people and kind of just built a, a relationship. It was I never had to persuade anybody, you know, to do anything. They kind of would start signaling to me that they wanted to see about taking this to another level, you know, oh, kind wow. of thing. And And so I never. I never felt like I had to sort of twist somebody's arm or pitch them or kind of like really, you know, extol the reasons for why we were going to do something. And it was never quite like that. It was a little more subtle than that in my experience. That's good. That's good. So how long were you in Ethiopia? What did you do after Ethiopia? I did two years in Ethiopia. And then my boss was a very, was a guy who would later become very famous. His name was Ted Price, who became the number two guy in CIA and did a bunch of stuff. And he was a, 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 native Chinese speaker. I mean, he spoke excellent Chinese and had done most of his career there. He went back from Ethiopia and became the, the head of East Asia Division. And so he offered me a, a tour of duty in Beijing. My wife and I were like, yeah, that sounds cool. Go learn Chinese and go to Beijing. Why not? And at the same time, we had always put in our, from the very beginning, it said, yeah, Moscow would be a great, would be the best assignment we could ever get. So I think our, our division, SE division, decided that it was probably better to not have us go off to China and study language for two years and do three or four years in China. And so they offered us Moscow. And that was, as soon as Moscow was on the table, I had to say no thank you to Beijing, took the Moscow assignment. So I came back and there was about an 18 month training period before going to Moscow. So I got back from Ethiopia and then it was 18 months of specialized training and language training and, you know, this and that, and then eventually on to Moscow. Wow. Can you go into some specifics about that training? Because, of course, you know, Moscow was the, the most denied of all denied areas. Yeah. Cold yeah. Cold. So I'm sure that I'm sure yeah. that it was really, really something else to be going through that pipeline. Yeah. There were a couple of things that were kind of significant about that pipeline. The training part was one. I mean, I, you go through the what they call the SE internal operations course, and it was run by a case officer who's a very famous guy. If you look him up, his name was Jack Platt. Jack Platt was one of the coolest, most intelligent, most and, and kind of kookiest guys you ever meet. I was, we, uh, he and I hit it off because of the 
sort of neither one of us were a guy in a suit and short hair kind of thing. He was quite a character. He had had a lot of great successes in his career. There's a book, a recent book that went, in, went through his career quite a lot. It's called The Best of Enemies, I think. Can't think of the name of the author right now, but but anyway, so Jack was the, running the training course. It's a two-month course. It's like so intensive, you can't really even imagine. You get up at six in the morning and you're going until 10 or 11 at night and you're doing it every day and you're out on the street doing stuff under surveillance, casing, looking for new, looking for uh, what we call operational sites where you could you know, do a dead drop or exchange packages with somebody. Then you go out and do it under surveillance. The FBI provided surveillance, so it was real surveillance that you were you know, going up against. And it goes on day after day after day after day at a pace that is just breathtaking and designed to wear you down and make you stressed out and, you know, put you in a situation where you start making mistakes and things like that. And so it was very, very challenging. But the idea was that if you could get through the course, then you could do the job when you when you got there. And I know there was a book, there's a book called The Main Enemy, written by Milt Bearden, who was the former one of the heads of SE division. And he talked about it like the top gun school for for case officers. And I think that's a little bit dramatic, but it was kind of like that because it was like you were really, really put under the gun. I mean, the regular training course I mentioned earlier was nothing compared to, to that one. You were just flat out 100%, you know, and maxed out in your capabilities all the time. So that was like that. Wow. So I have read that the technical services division the, at the CIA, a lot of the things that they were pioneering, they kind of were tried out or put into action in in Moscow before anywhere else? Is that true to your knowledge, technical equipment that you were using? Well, like, for example, I mean, yeah, I think so, because Moscow was the most restrictive environment. And so it was the place where there were you needed a better bag of tricks. I say most restrictive. I mean, for example, everywhere else, East European countries like Poland and all that, you have surveillance a lot of the time, but not all the time. And then in Moscow, if they knew who you were and they knew who most of us were, you get it 100% of the time, 24-7. And so, you know, you figure out, well, how am I going to go out and meet an agent if I have surveillance all the time? And so they provided, I think Moscow got the first shot at every new technology that came along or every new technique that somebody figured out. Hmm. So once you arrived in country, I guess it was, you're there under an, an alias, I assume. And what was no, it? No, no. To go to Moscow, you mean? No, no, yes. no. You know, we would do stuff in alias all the time, but not your main status in the country was not in alias. So like, for example, I might go to Moscow, you're there as a officially a diplomat and all of that. I might then travel to some other country to do some special operation or something like that and do that whole thing in alias. Or in every country where you're working, you go out and do individual things in an alias, you know, so you're not always exposing your true name to who you're dealing with. But your basic status was was in was in true name. Okay. Okay. So you flew in as Michael Sellers then. I did. I did. Yeah. Second secretary, political section of the embassy. Hmm. That was my, you know, official status. Okay. And what, what was it like once you were actually there on the ground? What were you doing on a daily or weekly basis? Well, when you get to Moscow, the first thing is it takes you a few months to get to where they kind of consider you ready to operate on the streets because you have to get to know surveillance, be able to manipulate surveillance. They have to be confident of all that. You have to know the city. Even though we studied the city before we go, you know, you still need to spend time there. So right from the beginning, I'd say the daily thing that you do is study surveillance, learn what surveillance does and doesn't do, learn how to recognize it, learn how to subtly manipulate surveillance, but be careful to not do anything to make them angry or irritated because then they can make 
your life, you know, pretty miserable and make it hard for you to operate. So you're, you're becoming like a master of surveillance is kind of one thing. Second thing that you're doing from the beginning is that in order to go out and do operations in a place like Moscow, you have to have sites created where you're going to do it, whether you're going to meet an agent or whether you're going to leave a package or you're going to pick up a package. And, and the whole process of, you know, identifying sites that have certain characteristics that make them good for this sort of thing, and then clandestinely taking photographs of them and then writing them up and then, you know, getting them approved is kind of some of the bread and butter work that, you know, gets done. And you can kind of start doing that sort of from the beginning. And then, but eventually you get to the point where now you start doing real operations and you go live on the street and you meet an agent or you, you hand off a package to an agent or you do a technical operation to, you know, has something, we had technical operations that involved listening devices that have been placed certain places and they had to be serviced and retrieved and things like that. So there's a, you know, you start doing that after a few months and every time, every single one of those operations is a really, really big deal. Every time you go out and do a live operation in a place like Moscow, you plan it intensively for weeks. You have every aspect of it is checked and double checked by everyone else in the in the in the station, and then it gets checked and heart and kind of uh, red teamed, you might say, by headquarters and looking for any anything in there that you know they think won't, would be insecure or not fully thought out. And plus, you have the whole actual content of what it is you're going to do when you meet the agent or whatever. So this it, a lot goes into each each operational act. Hmm. As the case officer who's going to be conducting the meeting, were you kind of the I guess I'd say the decider on everything, or was it like a like a group decision on how to conduct every operation? No, no. When you're, I mean, it, and even in outside in you know other countries. Well, I, I, when you were somewhere else, like if you're in Paris or you're in London or if you're in, in I mean, it, everything is kind of cut and dried. You're going to meet somebody in a hotel or you're going to meet somebody in a safe house or you're going to meet somebody. And then you're, you know, you're theoretically going to do a surveillance detection run, which, you, you know, you should do. But you never see any surveillance in those places. Right. So it's like you're doing it to be careful. But the reality is nobody's really following you around in those mm -hmm. places. In Moscow or somewhere like that, it's the opposite. And so, no, no, I mean, literally, you know, all the way up to the level of the chief of the SC division has to sort of approve every aspect of every operational act. And you're probably talking about, you know, I mean, I did, I was there 23 months and I did something like 31 or 32 operational acts. And that was a lot, hmm. right? That was like, the, I think it was the most, but certainly among the most of anybody there. So it's not like you do it every, you know, every day there. You plan it. It takes planning. And each time you do this, there's this whole process of getting a package ready for the agent. And that goes all the way back to headquarters. What's in the package? What are we getting from him? What are we giving to him? Are you getting cameras? Is he getting money? Is he getting medical supplies that he needs? Is he getting all these things? There's an operational note that's going to go to him in there. And so every it, there's a lot that goes into each and every operational act, you know, in a place like that. Wow. OK. It sounds like with everything that you are, are carrying, then there's there's really no way to explain away what you're doing if you actually are caught. Is that correct? There are some some circumstances where you might not have that stuff on. you, Right. Hmm. There's some, you know, and you could, for example, go out and leave that stuff somewhere before you actually meet an agent or something like that and then direct him to it so that in case you get busted when you go to meet the agent, you won't have it on you at that point. But for the most part, 
it's kind of a given that yeah, if you get if you get caught with all this stuff on you, you know, you can't say. I mean, you can say whatever you want to say, but they, you know, they know. Right. But they know anyway. I mean, I got eventually arrested. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't like I could pretend that, oh, you know, I, it would have been foolish for me to stand there and say, no, I'm not what you think I am. I'm just a diplomat. Meanwhile, I've got this tape recorder running sewn <laughs> inside my jacket and I got, you know, 50,000 rubles and I've got, you know, I mean, it's just no, it wouldn't it wouldn't work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about that in a moment before we do get to, I guess, what was some of your last days in Moscow. I've read a lot about the penetration of the U.S. Embassy, the old embassy building, and later the new one as well. So I, I know that you must have worked in the old embassy building. What was it like working in that embassy during your time there? It was a, the old embassy building had been bought, uh, had been, well, the U.S. had had it since 1953, and it was supposed to be temporary. It was never supposed to be a permanent embassy. It was a nine-story former Soviet apartment building that was a rat trap if you ever saw one. And it was like very, very cramped and very difficult on a lot of levels to secure, right? Because there were like, there were Soviet citizens had access to the lower floors. So what we did is we took the seventh, eighth and ninth floors and made that what's called the chancery, which is where all the secure parts of the embassy are supposed to be. And then tried our best to, you know, secure that area, but even that didn't really work. And then within that area, you had like our, our station was a secure area. It was kind of like a, a box within a box within a box. And that was, we were able, I, that was secured. There was never any indication that they ever compromised that. But as far as like the general area, you know, they had the, in 1984, there was a big scandal when they discovered that the IBM Selectric typewriters being used by the State Department and the embassy had been compromised in the Russian, and the KGB was able to read everything that was typed on every one of those typewriters, stuff like that. So there were, you know, there was the microwave thing, which I think people probably know about where they were firing, shooting microwaves through the windows to try to, you know, and then there was listening devices discovered inside the ambassador's office at one point. All of this is over a course of, you know, many years, but that all of that was in the old embassy building. And then at the same time, they were building the new embassy building. And it was the new embassy building where this really super sophisticated bugs were implanted in everything to the point that they had to pretty much abandon the original construction plan and kind of scrape it down to the ground and then, you know, re redo it with materials brought in from the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've read quite a bit about that and what a what a debacle that turned out to be, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah. working where you are and, and with the job that you have, you have every reason to be paranoid, really, more so than just about anybody else in the world. Do you feel like that was it was obviously pretty well founded, but did did it ever feel like paranoia to you? Did it ever stress you out to the point that you were like, this is too much or anything like that? No, the one thing I gotta say, they give you a, a vacation halfway through. And to this day, that's the coolest vacation I ever had in my life because I did a year in Moscow. And then we got on a plane and we went to the island of Fuerteventura in the Canary Islands, which is about as remote as you can get. And spent three weeks there, no cell phones, of course, in those days, no communication with the outside world, read books, go fishing, lie on the beach. And I mean, I, that that was the best vacation ever. I never had one like it. And I needed it. I felt that I needed it. And that's the, but as far as like when I was there, my thought about it was and I, you know, I, I came from a background in filmmaking and stuff like that. And I was I, it was a performance. Everything you were on, you were on a stage 24 seven. Everything you were doing was being watched. You knew that. And so I was always trying to, you know, use that opportunity to kind of tell a story to surveillance that would would help me in my work. 
in my case, that story was that I really liked Russia and I was really into Russian culture, that I was not one of those complaining Americans who, you know, kind of everything was better in America. I would go out and do a lot of stuff and go to, you know, concerts and go to theater and all that kind of stuff. And I, of course, it was easy because I really did like that stuff. But I also did a whole lot of things to just try and, you know, make them feel that I was non-threatening. They knew who I was and they knew I was would, would probably be doing stuff, but I just didn't want to. Because other people, there were some people that were more combative and more aggressive or more, I would call it, looking at it more as like an angry competition. And sometimes they would get harassing surveillance that would shut them down to where they couldn't even operate. Hmm. You know, so so for me, it was like I just and, and I think that that approach that I took kind of made it sort of smooth. It was like it wasn't like I was angry or I was always stressed out. I was just kind of playing a role. But you had to play the role you know, like almost all the time. Right. The only time we didn't have to play it was inside the actual CIA enclosure where there, then you didn't have to do that. But anytime I'm outside, whether I'm in my apartment, you know, with my wife or out on the streets or anything else, you know, you, you just know there's an audience for you. You're telling them a story. Wow. It does sound like that time in Hollywood prepared you even better than I anticipated in that case. It makes perfect sense that you'd have to see it as taking on a, a dramatic role. I don't know who came up with this, this statement, but I agree with it. Espionage is actually thespionage. It's, you know, it's acting. I mean, if you think oh, wow. about it, when you're, when you're undercover, you're always acting. You're always telling us, you know, pretending to be someone other than who you are. Exactly. You're always doing things and, and, and you're, you may only be performing for one person who's right across the table from you or something. But so there really is a lot, you know, a lot in common, first of all, with the kind of the acting part of it. And secondly, production. You know, if you, I talked to you about how complicated those operations were in Moscow and how much you had to plan for them. And honestly, producing a movie exactly like that, right, in order to, to shoot <laughs> To shoot a movie, you have to plan everything in advance. You have to think of everything that might go wrong. You got to make sure all the elements are that you know. You've got to have the script that you want to. It's all. It's very very similar. So people who most people hear it and they go, "What? How movies?" And yeah, but to me, they were very similar. Hmm. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I haven't ever heard it called thespionage before, but that that's pretty (laughs) insightful for sure. Yeah, yeah, it works. I think it's true. I think it's true. Sure. So while you were there, if I recall correctly, the U.S. Marine Clayton Longtree, Longtree, excuse me, was serving at the embassy as well. And you got to know him a little bit. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He was a, one of the Marine security guards there. And I got to know him. I, I, I played a lot of basketball. I'm a tall guy, six foot five, and had played basketball in school and everything in, in the college. And so we had a group a lot. You know, there were like four or five Marines and three or four of the rest of us in the embassy played a lot of basketball over at the at Moscow State University. Clayton was one of them. And so he was kind of like, I, I got to know him a pretty good bit, although obviously not super well. But yeah, he was somebody that, you know, he's kind of nice. And, and he was kind of like, as far as I knew him, he was a nice kid, a little bit of a, a loner, you know, but not anything, not anything that would have led you to believe that what ultimately ended up happening to him was going to happen. I certainly didn't, you know, I didn't see it coming. Hmm. Okay. And for anybody who's listening right now who doesn't know who I'm referring to, Clayton Lone Tree was a Marine Corps guard who eventually was convicted of espionage for his activities in Moscow. And then afterwards, when he was uh, moved to, I believe it was Vienna, was his next posting after Moscow. Do you happen to recall meeting the girl that he got involved with? I think her name was Violetta Sena. Violetta Sena. Yeah. Well, everybody met her because she worked in the embassy downstairs. In the, 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 there was like a a section of the embassy that was 
involved in everything from like booking your travel to booking uh, if you wanted to go out to eat you had to you had to book a reservation through them and violetta was one of the people there she was an attractive sort of intriguing young woman probably in her late 20s i guess and unusual in that because most of the other people working there weren't were not kind of a little bit glamorous like she was but she was not well it wasn't so much that you would look at her and say oh she's a plant you knew everybody Every Russian working in the embassy was reporting. They had to, right? So you kind of, that was something that everyone kind of understood. But yeah, I knew Bill, I didn't know her well, but I interacted with her plenty. And, but she was, I, I know she became kind of popular with like the Marines and stuff. There's pictures of her at the Marine Ball and some other events where you wouldn't normally see just any embassy, Russian embassy employee. And so she was kind of a little bit special in that regard. And I think it explains a little bit about how he, he kind of came in contact with her and they ended up having a relationship. Yeah, there's a, a very good book that I've read recently about that called Moscow Station. And you're mentioned in the book. You probably knew that already, mm -hmm. but it's a pretty deep look at both of them, as a matter of fact. And it's pretty interesting as well. So it's it's kind of funny. I, I don't think most people would anticipate that the U.S. Embassy in Moscow would be so full of Soviet local nationals employed there, as a matter of fact. But I guess that was just the way that it was. It's always been that way. And it's there's an effort to sort of like segregate the portions of the embassy where that happens. So like, for example, you have the administrative part of the embassy and logistics and transportation and all of that. And that's all on the ground floor, as well as the consular section where they do visas and stuff like that. Right. All of that. And that's where all these Soviet employees are working. And so it's almost like a, a totally different area. Then you go up the elevator to the seventh floor, past the Marine security guard into the secure area where there's the ambassador's office, the political section, the economic, and there aren't Russians working in there. So it was not, it's not like they're everywhere, but they were definitely, you know, they were part of the embassy and, and the embassy couldn't really function without them because we didn't have enough Americans to do all those things. And later on, when they eventually got into the big tit for tat, you know, expulsion situation, the Americans were left for a while without the local employees. And that became very hard. You know, the famous quote is like the ambassador's washing his own car. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So, yeah, it was kind of like that. Well, yeah, it's it's kind of hard for me to imagine, but I guess that that's one of the compromises that you have to make when you're in the capital of another country. And, you know, both countries are kind of dictating back and forth the rules for how they're going to operate there. Was that yeah. one of the things that the Soviets dictated was you will have X number of, of locals employed inside the embassy? Or is that just like yeah. a matter of convenience and tradition? Well, I think it was kind of a matter of you will only have so many American diplomats in the embassy, and that's not enough to do all those tasks. Okay. Right. So okay. they, they, the control was was more on that, and there was kind of mutual. We did the same thing to them in the U.S., and there was some attempt to have kind of a similar number of people. But of course, they had the UN in New York, which gave them a whole other place to place their intelligence officers and to have a big presence. Oh, yeah. So they had many more in the U.S. than we had over there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess they lucked out on that end of the deal. Yeah. So you said you much. spent 26 months altogether in Moscow. Is that right? No, 23, 23, 23 months. OK. And I guess that your time there ended very abruptly right at that at that final fateful meeting. Yeah. Yes. Can it you did. tell us a little bit about that? I guess that's kind of what people would best know you for at this point already. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be known for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well. So the case that I was dealing with was a, an, an unusual case. It was a KGB officer in the second chief directorate. And what had happened was 
a number of KGB officers had worked for, you know, had become agents of the CIA over the years, but they were always from the first chief directorate, which is the directorate that is kind of like the CIA. They go out abroad. Right. So so they're the ones that would be sent out to other countries and they would end up getting recruited while they're in some other country. Meanwhile, you have the second chief directorate, which is the counterintelligence directorate, which was they were not people that would go out to other countries. And they were kind of considered the guardians, if you will, you know, like the guardians of the Soviet Union kind of thing. And nobody, none of them had ever become spies for the CIA. And so this guy comes along. And he volunteered. And so there was a lot of interest in him and a lot of we placed we attached a lot of importance to him. And he provided some really, you know, significant information. And so we were he was important for us to meet. As time went on, we began to have, you know, this whole thing in 1985 where some of our agents started getting arrested. And we didn't know what was causing it at first. And we wanted to know. And so this has been going on for about six months. And so it got to the point where this guy, my agent, who's we called him Cal, GT Cowl, C-O-W-L, but his actual name, which we didn't learn until many years later, was Vorontsov. That Vorontsov had gone quiet. He had he'd stopped, you know, he'd gone for, for almost six months. We had not had a meeting with him. And during that six months, a lot of bad things had happened. And we were hoping he could tell us something about what it was. So he, he surfaced again after those six months. And left a signal that he was willing to, he was ready to meet. And so we kind of knew that maybe it was a trap, right? And there was a whole flurry of stuff back and forth between Moscow and Washington. And it ended up having to get presidential approval because there was a high probability that, not a high probability, but a significant probability or possibility that it was going to end up being what it did, you know, an ambush. But at the same time, it was considered to be worth the risk. And I was getting on, you know, it's towards the end of my tour of duty. It was a 24, especially a 24-month tour of duty anyway. So it was like, okay, we're going to do this. So kind of got everything together and went to do the meeting and went through an elaborate process to escape surveillance and, you know, all of that. Arrived at the meeting site. I got there early and there was a meeting site. Was In Moscow, you have these apartment buildings that are like a block long. And then there are archways that lead from the street into the interior courtyard. The interior courtyard is like this big kind of messy area that has like sheds and some trees and maybe a kind of a rusting sort of playground and things like that. But it's a kind of so what you would do is meet the the initial point of contact would be in this archway and then you'd walk back through the courtyards to do the meeting. And you could go from one courtyard and one set of buildings to another, you know, all through the back, kind of the back ways. And so I did everything I could because I was really thinking, man, maybe they're going to bust me, you know, here. And I, I came through, I got there early and went through and went in and out of some of the buildings and, you know, did everything I could to see if I could spot an ambush. <laughs> Couldn't. And then I finally went and found a, I found a bench on a park kind of in such a way that I could be like 500 yards away and I could watch the location, you know, and I did all these things, you know, thinking I might be able to spot something. Never did. So I went to the to the meeting at the time and then the agent was there. And as soon as I walked up to him, I could tell that it was going to be he, he had lost like 20 or 30 pounds. And he was he was actually in he couldn't even talk to me when I walked up to him. He just started shaking. Oh. And I and I just kind of knew I'm pretty sure they wanted the meeting to go on for a little bit. So I would say some things on, you know, that they could be recorded, that would be, but the meeting didn't really go on because the guy was 
it, it turns out, I mean, years and years later, we know that he had been in custody for three or four months and he'd been, you know, harshly interrogated and he was really in a, in a bad state and he just wasn't capable of playing his role beyond just being there. Hmm. So as soon as I walked up to him and we, you know, he, he just kind of started almost cowering. Like, you know how a dog, the dog's been kicked and brutalized, how they'll kind of cower. Yeah. It was almost like that. And uh, then, you know, within about 15 seconds, there was like a little pause where I'm kind of looking at him and going, oh, this is not good. And they didn't come just that very instant. But then after about 10 or 15 seconds, when they became, I guess they're listening and they can tell that it's not going to be a regular meeting. Then they all came out of the, you know, cars, trucks, lights, cameras, you know, the whole thing. And then it was a big, a big production at that point. Talk about production. (laughs) So what was going through your head during that 10 seconds? Did you think about trying to turn around and walk away or were you just kind of accepting that this was uh, the, the, the changing point, so to speak? There was a training exercise that we did in Washington as part of that course that I told you about, where unexpectedly you go around the corner, you're doing some operational act, and suddenly the FBI jumps you and 15 FBI agents grab you, throw you to the ground, throw you in a car, take you off and interrogate you and stuff like that. And I, you know, so this, this had happened in training and I thought I did okay in training. I stayed cool. They do it like a, make you think that maybe you your training exercise that you were doing somehow got mixed up with a real drug bust. And so they're trying to convince you that you, the package that you picked up had heroin in it and you're oh, really wow. going to be busted and all of that. And I, I never quite believed that, but that's the way they do it. So it's not like, and I never said, well, I'm doing a CIA training mission. Let me go home. You know, you can just kind of play it out. I said, I need to see a lawyer and just, and it went on for a while. So anyway, when it was over, Jack Platt, the guy I told you about the training, the head of the training class, you know, he sits you down and you do a little debrief and he start and he says, okay, you know, you stayed cool. That was good. So tell me what you saw. And he started asking me everything that had happened. How many people, how many men, how many women, how many cars did you get the license plate of the car? Where did they take you? You know, and on and on like that. And I realized that I couldn't remember a lot of that. And then he, the training point was that if you get caught like that, then you instantly switch from becoming from an offensive case officer to a defensive counterintelligence investigator. And in that moment, you now switch gears completely and focus on everything around you so that you can, when you come back, you can contribute to the counterintelligence investigation about what's happening. So I, because of the training, when this thing happened, that's where my head was completely. I just switched on the internal video camera and I stayed really, you know, very, very calm and just, and I know I didn't even think about trying to run away. I mean, I knew they'd have like such, it was well established that when they do something like this, they got 30 or 40 people there, you know, you're not going to run away from them. And, mm-hmm. and it just, you look stupid, I think, you know, doing that. So instead I just stayed very calm and then just paid attention to what was happening for the rest of the, you know, then the whole process of being arrested, being interrogated and, you know, trying to find out what they knew. Did they know I, things that were important to me were like, did they know it was me? Were they expecting it to be me when I got there? Did they know how I got there? Did they know what, what technique I had used to escape surveillance? Did they, you know, all those kind of things. And I learned, I learned a lot during, during the, uh, you know, the course of my time in the hospitality of the KGB was able to, uh, you know, for example, be pretty confident that no, they didn't know it was me. They didn't know how I got out. And that kind of supported what we, expected that they 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 knew 
they had him and they, you know, they set up over where he was going to be. And then they waited to see who it was, who came and a few other things like that. So, you know, it was, it was like that. So, hmm. so you were able to gather some very valuable intelligence in those next few minutes and hours. Then I take it, was that something that was like a, a teachable lesson after the fact, how you were treated, how you were handled and what you were asked? Well, it was a te- it's kind of this, there's a, it's teachable on the front end in the training, right? Which is how I, I learned. And I was much better. I was much, much better in the real situation than I was in the training situation. Hmm. So the training, the teaching and the training work as far as like teachable afterwards. Yeah. It's interesting because there's kind of like sort of, you're supposed to, the general theory is you're not supposed to talk to them and you kind of act like you don't speak Russian and maybe they'll say things that you'll overhear. But in my case, from the very beginning, they made it very clear that they knew I spoke very good Russian and, you know, that weren't, they weren't going to make that kind of mistake. And so I engaged with them and I talked with them because you're, you know, you're kind of stuck with these guys for a while. And, and through some of the, you know, some of the interactions that I had with them was how I got some of the information that later on became important. And so I was a little bit, there was a little bit of a sense that maybe I was not exactly following exactly the, but nobody ever criticized me for it directly. And they, and actually later they, you know, I got some, you know, kudos for having, you know, gotten some information out of them. But at the same time, it was like not exactly a standard approach. And, and I, and I, so I'm not sure it was, you said, is it a teachable moment? It was kind of like in that moment with me as the person who was there and with the Remkov Silnikov and the people on their side who were the ones that were interrogating me, I think I handled it in the right way. And I think I'm regarded to have handled it in the right way. But I don't know that it was like you could say it's a one size fit all. It's all. Mm. And everybody should do the same thing. Yeah, it's it's hard for most of us to imagine being in that situation. Do you think that they – how do I put this? Did they look at you like like an enemy that they had caught or were you like the – Opposing team. So uh, it's, yeah, I, I think it's more of the latter. I mean, one of the things that I was aware of, and it's kind of weird, it's kind of come full circle and all these many years later. You, at the, when I went out there, one thing you kind of knew, and I, I honestly did think about this a little bit, was that if you get arrested, you instantly are in the KGB Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? <laughs> For them. And, you know, or the Hall of Fame of CIA officers captured in month. And so you kind of want to, you don't want to be remembered as a jerk. You kind of want to be, you know, you want to have your dignity. You want to, you want to be professional. You want to be kind of remembered as someone who, you know, was a, an honorable adversary, if you will, as opposed sure. to. And so I had, I really did. That thought was there. And then their attitude towards me from the beginning was, I thought, just professional. You know, they were, they didn't rough me up any more than they really needed to. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, if I had started resisting, they might have, but they, you know, they just, they quickly, immobilized me and and I accepted, you know, that. And then after that, you know, it was, I mean, it's kind of rather than an enemy, it was more like they had captured a strange and interesting creature that Hmm. they had been following and were now interested to be in close proximity to. There's more of that. And for me too, it's kind of like, wow, these guys have been following me around for two years and now I'm sitting in a band with 10 of them and we're all kind of eyeball to eyeball with each other. We're in this kind of strange situation, you know? So, and I I should also tell you though, that some of my colleagues who got arrested told me that their experience was a little different. And one guy in particular, I won't mention his name, but if he hears this, he knows what I'm talking about. He said that Rem Krasilnikov, who was the, the legendary head of the American department who kind of conducted all of this, these operations against us was quite angry at him or seemed angry during his interrogation. And, and he thinks, and I think he's probably right. He was in that case, they were angry about the agent 
that was the, the the agent in that case was Tolkachov, the famous oh, yeah. one called the Billion Dollar Spy. But whatever, for whatever reason, in my case, it was kind of different. And no, there was none of none of that. They did try to recruit me, or Chris Ilmakov did. <laughs> I wasn't even I wasn't even a hundred percent sure that he he did. He kind of did. He said, you know, we can make things really good for you and this and that. And I said, I don't think so. And it was literally about a one minute exchange. But then later on, many years later in a documentary, another one of the team, a guy named Sergei Tarakov, in the documentary said, yeah, yeah, Chris, Rem Krasilnikov, you know, tried to recruit him, offered him a place in the sun. And he said, no, thank you. <laughs> wow. So wow. that was my confirmation. That, yeah, I, I had really it was a real recruitment attempt. Hmm. But I think it was kind of half hearted. Yeah, I'm sure that they didn't expect you to immediately turn to their side after two years of working, but have to take the shot while they had you, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's kind of about about what it was. It was it felt very kind of perfunctory or you might as well take a shot at it kind of a thing, you know, but but then it put me in a position of having to report that and I did. I mean I came back to yeah, and I you know, they did all you know, I said this and this and that. And it was like but I always was like I just never felt like a full, real serious kind of an approach. Hmm. That makes sense. So are you then PNG out of country within just a, a couple of days. That's what normally happens, isn't it? Yeah, it happened. It, it, I was given an extra day so that I could play in the finals of the Broomball Championship. And I know that sounds kind really? of silly, right? No, but it's true. What happened was the Broomball Championship was on Saturday morning, and I normally would have had to leave by Friday. And then it literally, it was the championship. All you know, it's it's like the all the international embassies have teams and this and that and this and that. And Murat, my boss was also the coach of the broomball team. And Krasilnikov said to me, as I was saying goodbye, he said, you tell Murat that you don't have to leave until Sunday. Oh, my gosh. So you can play in a game. Wow. <laughs> so, so I did. So I stayed until Sunday and left on Sunday morning. Wow. So How did I had you like four do? days. Oh, my God. It was the funniest thing because we had the party, the farewell party was Friday night before the game. And it ended up being like the wildest party in the history of Moscow, I think, because it was a lot of things came together. We had the party at the dacha, the embassy dacha. Everybody went out there with a lot of, you know, and it was like not just because we were leaving, but because it was kind of, there was a whole group of us that had been together for almost three years from language training. And I'm talking not CIA, everybody. This is embassy, everybody. Right. And I'm not not the CIA people. And it was just like this moment that sort of happened where we we now realize that the, the larger team of all these 25 or 30 people were breaking up and it just became a wild party. And so I got a little bit, I was the goalkeeper on the team in broomball, which is like hockey without skates. And mm -hmm. I could not have stopped a basketball the next day. And <laughs> oh so I goodness. think, I think we lost something like 12 to three. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny. We did not win, <laughs> but we were playing the evil Finns, who were by far, they were kind of like the New York Yankees or the, I don't know, you know, like the, the evil Darth Vader of the Broomball League, and they somehow wow. could, could run on the ice and not slip and slide like everybody else did. So we were expected to get beat, but not that badly. I'll be. I didn't expect to hear that, honestly. <laughs> yeah. So after you leave Moscow, then what do you do next? Well, I got really lucky again. They treated me well, and I was, I, I to this day, I'm very grateful for the, you know, the assignments that I was given. So, you know, after that, I've been in the news very briefly, but very loudly, right? And so my cover is no more, it's completely gone. They could have just said, you sit on a desk in headquarters for a couple of years and we'll figure out what to do with you. But instead, it happened that my arrest took place in March of 86, and it was about Two weeks after Corazon Aquino, after Ferdinand Marcos had fled the Philippines and Corazon Aquino had become the president 
Marcos had been a dictator for 12 years under martial law, and now they were returning to democracy. And there was a need in the Philippines for a young officer to liaise with the Filipino government at the very highest levels through a very senior Filipino cabinet level person who was her close advisor and who was also a kind of a young guy. And they thought, yeah, we want to have these you know, two sort of young guys that can do this thing. And I got offered that job. And so I spent like three or four months in Washington and then went to the Philippines where I was there for all kinds of interesting times. There were seven coup attempts in three years. And I was in the thick of a lot of interesting stuff over there, as well as a communist insurgency that was trying to overthrow the government, as well as some other stuff like that, a Muslim insurgency in the South. So uh, you think the Philippines is going to be like, no, oh, that'd be nice tropical and all of that. And it was, and I loved all of that, but it was also very lively, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of a, cha- a lot of challenges. And I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. Wow. Did you find yourself like in a, in a level of personal danger there? That was the only place that I really was, I think, in serious personal danger because I had been outed publicly and because the Communist Party of the Philippines was actively attempting to assassinate American officials, and they did, in fact, assassinate the defense attache, Nick Rowe, who was a good friend of mine. And, you know, my situation was that I was, according to the intelligence, there were like three people that had serious threats against them. One was the ambassador, one was the chief of station, the other was me. And I was like, I mean, normally I would have not come up on their radar, but to have such a target on my back, but it was because of Moscow and because of the media coverage and and things like Philip Agee's group, the Covert Action Information Bulletin, which was in the business of naming names of CIA officers. And the Communist Party of the Philippines was reading all that stuff. So they knew who I was. So anyway, I had an armored car and eventually my family had to leave. And I spent the last six months kind of living in safe houses and driving an armored car and stuff. So there was some threat at that point. I was really conscious of what could happen. It was after, you know, Nick Rowe had been, and they also, they, they shot some people up at Clark Air Force Base, you know, so there was a real active thing going on. And I, you know, I felt, I felt that in, there was probably, but on the other hand, it was like, they gave me this armored car that was like the, the ambassador and the chief station had these really high class, real deal armored vehicles made in the U S and I had this homemade version that the Navy Seabees put together in the Philippines, where it's like an Isuzu trooper, and they put armored plating in it and all this, but it was the, the windows wouldn't open. And so I had a gun, but if I, I, I couldn't shoot the gun because I couldn't open the windows, oh. you know, you know, and it was kind of like it made you feel kind of somehow badass to be driving around with a gun, but it also felt like, what could I possibly do with it? You know, I have to get yeah. out of the car to do it. The main thing is you just feel like you want to be, and I actually wasn't even sure having a gun was a good thing because I think you're safer if you feel really vulnerable and you behave accordingly rather than having a false sense of badassness because you're, because you're, 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 you know, you have a weapon. So, but anyway, I, nothing ever happened. I, there were, I later, I learned that they were looking at me and, you know, some stuff, but nothing ever came of it. And I was, I got through it. Okay. Wow. Okay, good. So no kidnapping attempts that you're aware of? (laughs) No. Okay. No, no, no. Thank goodness. I didn't realize that you knew Nick Rowe. Can you tell me a little bit about that, about him? Well, he was a a highly decorated, he was kind of a war hero 
of the top, you know, first order. And he was considered to be someone who would, would go on to very, very high level jobs within the defense department, within the military, and then eventually maybe the defense department. And great guy. He had the same armoring I had, by the way. Uh, hmm. Same, you know, the same made by the CBs. And, and it was a kind of a, the armoring was pretty good, but there were like the plates where the, where the glass came together, it wouldn't curve. And so there were like little, like triangular areas that were not, really armored they were like you know the, the armoring didn't wasn't 100 percent, and he mm-hmm. died unfortunately because of shots that got through that that little gap that we wow. both had in the, in the cars they shot 86 shots and i think about five or six of them got through and one of them got him in the neck and killed him so it was really but it was kind of a uh, we were i guess facing you know similar kind of situation and the only thing was i think we were more they were more creatures of routine in the defense attache's office and he had a driver driving him to and from work and stuff like that and we didn't do that we drove ourselves and we're trying to use different routes and things like that but it could have happened to me just as easy as it happened to him, I no. yeah. wow okay so it was pure essentially it was pure bad luck that some of those rounds made it through the the chinks in the armor so to speak it wasn't that the adversary knew about the no, they, no, they just shot so many shots, and yeah. some of the shots got through. But okay, but I mean, it's it's like you're it, it, looking back on it, it. It seems to me like that little gap could have been covered because it would have just taken another piece of glass to to cover it. You know, it just didn't do it, and it was kind of like you. You think the odds are well. In fact, it, 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 the gap that I'm talking about was on the sides where the where the stuff comes in, and you, they means they have to have you kind of surrounded. And shooting from the side, it's not just shooting from the front for that to happen. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things that's really tragic because he would have survived it without that. I, he wow. would have been able to, he wouldn't have died. That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a small detail like that can make all the difference in the world, unfortunately. Yeah. And I felt kind of like we all should have noticed it and said, why is it that way? And why can't that be fixed? Because it, mm-hmm. was, it was part of There were like four or five of us that had these homemade armored beer I'm done in the Philippines. And we all had that same design flaw, you know, and we all saw it and we none of us did anything about it. Hmm. My gosh. So after the Philippines, what did you move on to next? That's when I went back into film. <laughs> oh, okay. That was your last posting with CIA? Yeah. I was in the Philippines when the Berlin Wall came down. So in November of 89, the Berlin Wall came down and I was like, okay, what's next now, right? I mean, it was no longer, it just felt to me like the whole Cold War and had been part of, that was my focus. The Philippine thing was kind of a, meant to be a little bit of a excursion, a little bit away from that, but not really because I was, I was in charge of this counterinsurgency program. And there was a lot of stuff that I was doing in the Philippines that had to do with Moscow and Russia and all that. But nevertheless, it was kind of like the larger reason that I was in and the whole way I kind of organized my thinking about being in CIA was about the, you know, competition with the soviets in the cold war so when the wall came down i kind of felt like i don't know you know am i really sure i want to keep doing this you know i had always thought and the other thing i should say is that when i came in i did not really think i was going to do it for 25 years had a career in film that i was trying to build and i felt like i was kind of abandoning that and so i you know and my father i mentioned that my father had been in the army and you know he he, he had some other skills as well and he wanted to get out of the army. And, and I remember after it was 10 years in, he, he wouldn't do it because he was waiting for that retirement. Mm-hmm. Right. So I kind of told myself I would stick it out for 10 years. But if I when I got to the 10 year point, I would really, really think hard about getting out. And if I didn't get out, then I would commit to stay in for the full like 25 years that it would take. So this was hitting right at the 10 year point. 
in my career. And then in the next month after that, they had this really big coup attempt in the Philippines that became crazy. Uh, it's a, that's a whole story there. But I got very much involved in I was in a building that got taken over by the rebels and this and that and this and that. And I did a bunch of things that I got some kudos for from the CIA. And But after that, it was almost like, okay, I've had my whole Russia experience. I've now had a first-class coup attempt <laughs> that, I, wow. that I got through. And it was just like I felt, you know, and I want to get back to film. And so I set up a company in the Philippines and stayed there and started making international co-production movies where I would bring, you know, I would kind of work to bring a U.S. company over and shoot a film in the Philippines. It was at a time when they were shooting Platoon, had been shot there, Apocalypse Now, the Delta Force movies and all of that. So it was not a bad time to do that. So that was my transition out, and I, and I left after that. Oh, okay, good. So I'm, we've already talked kind of about how your your earlier experience before you came into the CIA informed your time in the CIA. How did your second, your return to Hollywood, how was that informed by your time with the CIA? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the thing is the, the risk-taking was one thing. I think I had been exposed to risk-taking in a, for a number of years, and it does change you. And I think that my you know, financially and other, otherwise, I think the tolerance of risk was higher, maybe higher than it should have been. But, you know, it was it was affected by the CIA time. I think the meticulous planning and things like that, you know, thinking of everything that can go wrong. You know, we used to talk about Murphy, you know, what can go wrong will go wrong. And that was kind of a mantra in like a place like Moscow, where, you know, for every time you try to plan an operation, you think about all the possible things that can go wrong and try to have a response ready for everything to go wrong. And I, that that was very much part of production. Particularly in the early part of it, I got involved as a line producer, and so I was really responsible for the wind and grind of production. And that meant, you know, anticipating all those things. So there was things like that, I guess, that it kind of crossed over. But I also don't, I don't know that it was too much that it, it, it affected it, just in those areas. Hmm. Okay. So you've been in the film industry since then, or have you done something else as well? Well, I've been in the film industry since that was like around 1990, uh, 91, I guess, when I when I did that, and I I was heavily in the film industry for 20 years, and then and then I for the last 10 years I'm still in, but also doing work as an investigator. I specialize in forensic video stuff, you know, where you know body cams and surveillance video and things like that, where I take them and. And, you know, I just yesterday finished a, a big presentation on a murder case here in Los Angeles where there was a surveillance video that kind of shows what happened, sort of, but not completely. And so it was a self-defense situation as far as our client is concerned. It was this good one shooting. Anyway, stuff like that. So I do that. But I still have movie stuff going on, but not as intensively as I did before, hmm. you know, so... The big thing I'm working on in movie wise is is a TV series, you know, a 10 part series streaming series based on the experiences in Moscow. And that's looking like it has a chance of really happening. So I've been working hard on that for a few years, but I still have a day job <laughs> as an investigator. So, you know. Wow. So is that is that a project that's filming or you're working you're moving towards filming it soon? Yeah, we're I put in it's it's a, I, it's a, a book that I've written called Year of the Spy. That's a nonfiction book that CIA has given provisional approval. That's one of the reasons, by the way, I can talk about what we talked about today, because I, you know, I, things that were approved for the book. So hmm. I kind of know what I can talk about. 
but I haven't re- the book's not released yet because now there's the 10 episode series and the thought is to release the book you know at, at more or less around the same time the series happens if indeed it happens we have a um, the plan is to shoot most of it in Ukraine and I've been over there twice and we've arranged a co-production partner there who's you know part of the deal and we're working on getting a Netflix or Amazon sort of thing happening here and putting movies together is, or movies or a series like this, you can spend years and years and years and it never happens or it'll happen, you know, and I'm feeling pretty optimistic, but I, I wouldn't want to act like it's a done deal. I'm getting a very good reaction to it and feels to me like the pieces are coming into, you know, coming together. But if you ask me back a year from now and nothing has happened, I want to <laughs> say, well, that's Hollywood, right? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Well, as an outsider to the film industry, you know, after the success of the Americans over the past few years, I think there's a real appetite for that sort of story, especially if you're going to keep it very yeah. accurate and keep it like a period piece, so to speak, yep. if that's your intent, then I, I think that yeah. you will find viewers for sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because the the Americans is set in exactly the same, uh, this 84, 85, 86 is mm-hmm. when, you know, that's set. And I, it was well done. I liked the Americans a lot. Everybody I know in CIA, you know, who saw it, you know, liked it as well. This is kind of like the flip side. This is Moscow at the same time, right? And now it's the streets of Moscow instead of the streets of Washington D.C. I think it has good potential. I mean, certainly the reaction that we get to the just the idea of it is an idea that easily gains traction. Absolutely. Challenge, the challenges in the execution because sometimes people think that there's going to be more you know guns and bombs and shooting and poison and you know and it it, it is a lot of drama and a lot of tension but it's not exactly like that and we want it to be realistic so it it, finding the right getting the script and you know i think we've got it in good in a good place and i think it's gonna good chance it'll happen at least it gives me a a good hobby to work on (laughs) spare time well i think i speak for a lot of people when i say that i'm i'm really excited about that and really looking forward to that becoming a reality for sure well, thank you. I appreciate it, and I hope that I hope that it'll happen. And I, I, I'm, it's, I've done 20 movies as producer, and you kind of get a sense for when something is really going to happen, or maybe not. You know, and I mean, I, I've I've mm-hmm. done 20 that actually got made, and I've probably worked on 70 or 80, meaning 50 or 60 that didn't mm-hmm. get made. But I think this one's going to get made. I really do. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Really looking forward to it. Well, Michael, I sure appreciate your time tonight. This has been incredibly informative, honestly, and I'm really looking forward to that series and that book as well. So thank you for joining me tonight. Well, good. And thank you for doing what you're doing. It sounds like you've got a really good thing going on here, and I'm happy to contribute to it, and I'll be listening to your other shows. Hey, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by Daydreamer Media. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101 or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage, and they receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is produced for your universal listening pleasure. Any statements shared during our program are opinions and experiences of our team and guests. If you disagree with any content presented herein, please find another show. If you love our show and want to connect, share your experiences, or know someone who we should interview on future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch through our website or Instagram. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. 
Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.